Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're starting a new walk through the book of Psalms, and we are going to be here for some time. My aim is to go through the summer in the book of Psalms, as far as that takes us, taking one psalm per week. Uh, and then at the end of the summer, beginning of September probably, we hopefully will be back together at that point, and we'll begin a series on the church, after which we'll go back to Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm chapter 1. Um, there are myriad choices that, that we make on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly and yearly basis, that put us on various paths in our life. And virtually everywhere we are right now, all of the circumstances that are around us in our life at this very moment are mostly a result of some sort of choices that we either made or that were made for us or made by people near us. But the point is that we make myriad choices on a daily basis, things that we think about, things that we don't even think about. John Bunyan, in his book, Pilgrim, The Pilgrim's Progress, demonstrates this, this uh, series of choices that a Christian must make in daily life with uncanny detail. He has the, the main character in this allegory named Christian who is constantly presented with choices, some that look good and actually are good, some that look bad and actually end up being good, some that look good and turn terrible in the end that Christian learns along the way. But constantly he is buffeted by people on all sides who are seeking to advise him. And you, the reader, get an idea based on their name, what kind of advice they're going to give him, even if in our real lives it's not so apparent all the time. But he's buffeted by these people who are seeking to give him advice as he is traveling on his way on the road to the celestial city. Some distract him and take him off into the muck and mire, and some help him along the way, and some cause him to stumble and sin. This morning, we are considering in this passage two pathways you could potentially walk down. And at any given moment in your life, you might find yourself on one or the other. The question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is to really think about your life. Which path are you on? Now for most of us, we're here streaming this service live on our couch on Sunday morning. What else, what else kind of path could I be on? Well, you might be a Christian, but is your life modeling the kind of path that would be evident of the blessed or the righteous person in this passage Let's read from Psalm 1, verses 1 to 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we ask you to be with us this morning. We know that you are always with us. Your Holy Spirit is with us, is here, is in amongst us, is in us, pointing us down the path of righteousness. But we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would be felt in a palpable way. That we would not only read the text of Scripture, but that you would open our minds to understand it. You would open our hearts to apply it to our lives. And where we are transgressing your word, where we are walking down the path of unrighteousness, of wickedness, where we are entertaining thoughts of the wicked, I pray that you would convict us. Don't leave us, please, Lord, in that. But convict us and point us to righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. There might be a temptation on your part, if you've read this passage before, maybe, or you've spent some, a good deal of time in the book of Psalms, might be a temptation for you to read the Psalms much like you would a hymnal. In a hymnal, you can turn to any page, you can sing, or in this case, in the book of Psalms, you can read the lyrics, and you can be edified. You can open a, a you know, in Christ alone, and you can read the lyrics to that hymn, and, and you can be edified. You can sing it to yourself, and you can be edified. And the temptation might be to treat the book of Psalms much like that, turning to any psalm and being edified by that psalm. And certainly, the Bible is itself that way. If you turn to any page in Scripture, I can promise you that there is a treasure trove of things. If you rightly understand the passage, you're keeping mind and eye on the context and you're understanding what that passage is saying and what it applies to, I can promise you any passage out there is going to have a treasure trove of things that are going to benefit you, that are going to, be, that are going to grow you toward uh, God and in Christ, that are, that things that are going to correct you, things that you can learn from, and various other things. So you can turn just like that to any psalm, and it will stand alone as profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. However, while the book of Psalms is an ancient hymnal that the Hebrews used, it's also arranged in a particular order. And while the hymns stand alone as beautiful instruments, these hymns in particular also work in concert with one another, coming together to make a broader point to the reader. The Psalter, or the book of Psalms, it sometimes we'll refer to it all as the Psalter, sometimes the book of Psalms, but the, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is divided into five books. And they're clearly marked, they should be clearly marked for you in your Bibles, labeled with book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five. Book one includes Psalm 1 to 41. As we'll see along the way, each of the five books of the Psalter will end with a psalm of praise. So as an example, book one will end with Psalm 41 saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. 
Book two will end with Psalm 72 in verse 19 saying, Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. And on and on, book three, book four, and book five will also end with hymns or with psalms of praise. And book five will end with several psalms of praise. So you can say that the book of Psalms is a book of praises. And each book presents a form of praise to God through all of life's circumstances. But Psalms is honest praise. So much of what passes in our culture for praise is dishonest. It's the kind of praise where you you put on a smile and walk into church in spite of the fact that you are fighting in the parking lot or crying at home. It's the kind of praise where you say, God has a plan, but what you really mean is, and I hate his plan. That's what passes for praise. It's fake. It's dishonest praise. But the book of Psalms teaches the Christian how to genuinely praise God through lament. To praise God through gritted teeth without giving platitudes or faking joy. And let's be honest, there are some psalms that make us downright uncomfortable. Perhaps in the end, as we go through the book of Psalms, maybe we won't see tears and anguish and disappointment as anti-Christian. Maybe we'll learn how to praise the Lord through those things. We will be introduced to all of this in book one of the Psalter. Chapter one to 41 will introduce us to all of these emotions and all of these prayers and all of these songs of praise. Rolf Jacobson in his commentary on Psalms summarizes the themes of book one like this. The life of faith then is a struggle to come to grips with God's goodness in suffering and hope, in lament and in Him, in candor and in gratitude. What one finds in book one of the Psalter then is the initial stage of that struggle-filled journey from obedience to praise. This initial stage of the journey, filled as it is with songs of lament, prayers for help, focuses mainly on candor, on stating as clearly as possible the challenge that life in God's creation and life in God's community are not filled with unambiguous experiences of God's grace. Rather, there is more than a little suffering in God's world and among God's people. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 then are not only an introduction to the first book of the book of of Psalms. They've been placed at the very beginning of the whole Psalter for a reason. They're an introduction to all of the Psalms, all 150 of them. 
Psalm 1 is going to tell us how that, that the whole Psalter is God's instruction to us, and we would do well to pay attention to it. And Psalm 2 is going to show us that God rules over all creation, and it's going to show us how God rules over the world as a whole. Now, with that in mind, we turn our attention to this first psalm in which the author sets before you a choice, two paths. One is the path of the righteous, and the other is the path of the wicked. And frankly, the stakes of the choice set before you could not be any higher. Let's first look at the path of the righteous. The path of the righteous. The psalm opens with that very familiar couple of verses. Probably you have this memorized, I would assume, if you've memorized verses in Scripture, this is probably one that's going to be, or two, that are going to be put in your back pocket. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We see from the very first verse a man And this man may very well be you or me or anyone that would uh, seek to undertake to read the book of Psalms or perhaps even just walk on the journey of life. And there's a promise at the very beginning, an implicit promise in the text, that this person is blessed. And we're going to see how this blessed man walks. He is happy. And the promise is he's going to be happy. Uh, In verse 3, we'll see that he's like a tree planted near streams of water, and whatever he does prospers. So there's, there's this promise that the life that we're about to look at and the characteristics of this life lead to good things. And so the psalmist should have our attention because explicitly he off, or implicitly he offers a promise of happiness and blessedness should we adhere to what he's going to say. And many in our society will immediately gravitate towards this passage as though it will unlock for them some secret to fortune of the Lord's material blessing in the here and now. Well, if I just do these things, then the Lord is bound to bless me because it says so right here in His Word. And so what you get, maybe, are prosperity gospel preachers that may even title their passage or their message, whatever you do will prosper, and found it on this passage, particularly verse 3 of this passage. And maybe they'll say something like, God's plan is for you to prosper and to be successful in every area of your life. God is your source, and He wants to bless you beyond your normal income. And now, As shocking as that statement may be, that's an actual quote. That's a direct quote from a prosperity gospel preacher. In fact, all I did on my first Google search was type in his name in Psalm 1, and that was the first link that came up, was using this passage to those ends. But this is exactly the opposite of what the psalmist is saying here, and I want to show that to you. Psalm opens with a contrast And the image would be something like a man standing at a fork in the road, and he has a choice between two paths. And talking about the man that is blessed, the psalmist says that he doesn't go down the path that is worn by the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers. Now, to be clear, 
When the psalmist says wicked and sinners and scoffers, those are all the same category of person. They're slightly different nuances of the same person, but they're all the same category of person. It covers a wider range of kinds of people that you might find. The wicked are probably obvious enough, those that devise evil and plan and scheme evil. But the sinners and the scoffers are a little bit more general terms. The term for sinner can mean something as general as as just fallible, uh, you you and I. And it can also mean something more specific, someone who, all the way to someone who devises wickedness. And the scoffer is a general term for somebody who's braggadocious, who uh, seeks after pride, who loves pride, and, and who is a prideful person. It can mean all the way to some, somebody who is uh, incredibly wicked. So the, all of these fit into the same category of reprobate. In the New Testament vernacular or context, we might call them unbelievers, But the point is, I don't want you to have in your mind by this person that's in Psalm 1, this wicked person in Psalm 1, only Adolf Hitler. Certainly he would fall into that category, but this could also be somebody just a little bit more general, a guy or girl you might know, perhaps a next door neighbor, who in making everyday normal decisions in their life, don't take into account the Word of God. But you need to take notice of how one chooses that path and what the choice to walk down that path of unrighteousness actually looks like. Look at how he depicts the man who chooses that road. First he walks in the council, then he stands in the way, then he sits in the seat. First he he passes by and he hears the words of advice. That's what that might sound like. He, might, he, he walks by and he hears the words of advice and he's intrigued by them and he, he cares to listen to them. The sec, and second, he stands in their way. In other words, the sinners are the ones walking by, the wicked, the, the braggadocious, the scoffers are the ones walking by and he's standing in their way that they might pass by him so that he can entreat them for some more insight. Then finally, he's sitting in their seat. It'd be like a dwelling place, sitting in their seat. He's he's sitting in their home. The idea is, is it's no longer is he taking just mere counsel from them. No longer is he standing in their way, but he's receiving outright teaching from them. In other words, the psalmist is depicting for us the nature of the road that leads to unrighteousness. It begins with just passing glances. And it ends in full indulgence. It starts with casual but restrained interest, and it ends in complete surrender of inhibitions. You might find yourself on any one of those parts of the road, where you're simply merely entertaining the thoughts of the world, the counsel of the world. But it will progress to the point where your inhibitions are released, and they are your teacher. But do you see how it turns in verse 2? Verse 2 turns completely. And it's not how you think it would. The blessed man is not merely one who avoids the counsel of one such person. That's how you might, might think, maybe, that the instruction would be. Well, avoid their counsel. The blessed man just merely avoids their counselor. Uh, that that, that would be what we would sometimes tell our children. Don't do those things. Don't make those bad choices. And just... 
because I told you so. Uh, but but don't do what don't do that thing. Don't make that choice. And that might be the moral instruction that you're expecting. The wicked man walks down the path of wickedness and listens to their counsel. Well, the blessed man doesn't do that. So just you know, don't do that. That's not what he says. And at the same time, he also doesn't say that it's merely someone who takes counsel or reads from the scriptures. The law of the Lord. That might be the second step that you might expect from a moral teacher. You need not choose bad things. You you need to stay away from bad things and you need to choose to read your Bible. Don't do the bad things and instead read the scriptures. And now while both of those things are certainly true, we would affirm those. You need to avoid bad things and you need to walk towards things like reading your Bible and praying. That's also not exactly what the psalmist is saying. The blessed man he's describing is one whose delight is in the Scriptures. What he's saying is the one who's blessed is the one whose delight is in the Scriptures. The psalmist says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, some take law of the Lord to be him talking about the Psalter, since Psalm 1 and 2 are introducing the whole book of Psalms. Maybe he's talking about the law of the Lord being the, the whole Psalter that you're about to read. And some think that he, his mind is primarily on the first five books of the Old Testament because that, the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, widely considered to be God's revealed will for his people. But I think it's safe to conclude that in a New Testament context that we find ourselves in, we're talking about the whole counsel of God. The Holy Scriptures as a whole would fall into this category as well. The word for law, which you're familiar with, Torah, is, could be interpreted law, or it could also be interpreted instruction. And depending on the context, you may interpret it law or you may interpret it instruction. And you may even have a note in your Bible by the word law that says basically that. It could be instruction that is meant here. And I think that's probably the way we should take it here. Interpret it or read it law, but interpret it, think of it as instruction. The situation that we're dealing with here in verses 1 and 2 is not a man that's blessed merely because his choices are in the right direction. He doesn't choose the bad things and he does choose the good things. It's not merely that. It's the man that is blessed because his delights are in the right things. His deep-seated joy, his delight is in the right things. This is why that prosperity gospel interpretation of this passage doesn't make any sense at all. If, in fact, I am this man who is blessed, then what the prosperity gospel preacher is offering to me is unfortunately not good enough. Which classifies all prosperity gospel preaching. It's not that it's offering you too much, it's that it's offering you not enough. If my delight is in the law of the Lord, you want to offer me money? Are you crazy? That's not what I delight in. How can money be a blessing 
that the psalmist has in mind if the blessed man is delighting in the instruction of God. That has to be the reward. God himself. Now, we have to ask another question too in this. Why would the blessed man be so delighted in the instruction of God? Because the instruction of God comes from the mouth of God. Growing in wisdom and understanding of the instruction that the Lord gives is like sitting at the feet of God Himself. Opening the Bible and reading it is like sitting at the feet of God Himself as He's speaking to you. You're growing and you're you're growing to know more and more of who He is. And in turn, your life begins to reflect more and more of his character as you begin to emulate your teacher, God himself, through his word. Your joy is found more and more in obedience to his will, more and more in him. Your worship becomes much deeper and much more sincere because he is your teacher. And as you look through scripture, ask yourself, What does God do by his word? You don't have to turn but to the first page of scripture. So you can see in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything that is in existence by his word. He speaks into nothing and creates something. Then in Exodus, he shapes his people, calls them out of Egypt, and shapes them around Mount Sinai by his word. He speaks to them. Throughout the Old Testament, he corrects them by the prophets. He literally puts his words in their mouth and they go and speak words of correction and admonishment to his children. Then he redeems them and saves them by his word in the Gospels. Jesus Christ, who is the living embodiment of the word of God. Everything he does, every, everything he speaks is true to God's word. And God shows you, John shows us, that his word in the gospel saves us. Throughout in betwe- the in-between time, we have the physical printed word of God in the Bible to correct us, to train us in righteousness, to teach us all kinds of things. In Revelation He executes judgment by the sword of his mouth, the word of his testimony. He executes judgment. The blessed man is delighted in the word of the Lord because it reproves him, it corrects him, and it's profitable for teaching and training in righteousness. And what is the result? Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He produces fruit. It's illogical to conclude that the prosperity that is promised at the end of verse 3 is monetary gain. It's illogical to conclude that. That's not what he's talking about for a couple of reasons. One I've already told you about, but... Uh, The blessed man's delight is in the Lord's instruction found in his word. So why would prosperity be the reward on the backside? 
For prosperity to be the reward, his delight would be money. My delight is money, and I got what I delighted in, which was financial gain. Second, the blessed man in this psalm is contrasted with the wicked who are taken away in judgment, as verse 5 states plainly. Now, if financial prosperity was, the, 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 was what the psalmist had in mind, and that was the blessing that came through obedience to the Lord, wouldn't poverty then be the result of the wicked who disobey the Lord? But it's not. Judgment and destruction is. He says the wicked will be judged and will be driven away from the Lord like chaff before the wind. It doesn't seem like what the psalmist is mostly concerned about is in this life but rather in the judgment to come. No, the fruit is not financial fruit. It's the fruit of righteousness. Please understand what the author is driving at here. He's saying this is how you should read the whole book of Psalms from here on out. The path of the righteous is walked by those who delight in the word of the Lord. If your delight is in the word of the Lord, then you will desire more than anything to be shaped by it. You'll study it. You'll read it. You'll want to know more about it. You'll want to be taught in it. You'll drink it in because in it, you find the teaching of truth from God himself. And that insatiable appetite for the knowledge of truth that only God can provide will produce, in the end, the fruit of righteousness. But this is where we have a serious, serious problem. You cannot manufacture delight. Try as hard as you might, you cannot manufacture delight when I first met the girl who would become my wife, every time she walked into the room, I would get that little feeling in the stomach. Uh, they used to call it the quiver in the liver, that little, that little moment where you kind of, you start having your insides kind of turn around on you and you don't know what's going to happen. You, I got nervous. My palms started sweating. There was a lot of saliva in the mouth that just kind of uh, was struggling to breathe a little bit. We hung out that semester in a large group as a mixture of guys and girls, and, and there were plenty of girls in that group that I was friends with, but none of them had my attention the way Andrea did. She used to wear, maybe this is too much information, she used to wear Bath and Body Works warm vanilla sugar lotion. Still remember what that smells like. I, I can remember the distinct smell of that. And every time I would smell it, I, my ears would perk up, my eyes would perk up, I'd look around for where she was. If she was there, I'd get that feeling inside. I wanted to spend time with her. I wanted to talk with her. I wanted to get to know everything about her. You can't manufacture delight. We've been married for 14 years in June. We dated for three years, almost three years before that. And so we've been in a relationship for nearly 17 years together. And I look back on the feelings that I had when I was 19, and I think, 
that idiot had no idea what real affection is, what real delight is. He was a fool. And if I could only tell you, we've been through many ups and many downs, and I have so much more delight for my wife today that it makes what I felt back in Rimshall Hall on the campus of the University of Mary Harden Baylor look like child's play. And some of you who may be watching this have probably been married for 40 or 50 years, and you're looking at me saying, 14 years? <laughs> Come on. Call me when one of you goes through cancer. Call me when tragedy strikes. Then you'll see what real delight is. You can't manufacture delight. But as the people in our church that have been married for 40 and 50 years can attest, you can grow it. You can grow in delight. And the more time you spend truly invested in the relationship, really invested, marriage level invested in the relationship, the deeper and more fulfilling that relationship becomes, the sweeter it becomes. My worry is that some of you have been dating Jesus for such a long time and the more you find out about him, the more teaching that you have, the more you attend worship services, the less you actually like him. Oh, sure, there's things that you like about church, meeting with friends and talking, networking, you like that. There's things about singing psalm, songs that really maybe pump you up and get you emotionally really excited. There are times where your emotions may even be over the top for what's being sung or what's been preached, things like that. When it comes to your affection for the Lord himself, those moments in private when you're in your room, nobody else is around. Are you opening the word and you're delighting in the word that's sitting in front of you? Or are you merely delighting in the idea of God? Your affection for the Lord hasn't really grown at all. You understand what he's saying in verse 2? His delight is. Not even let his delight be. Though that's certainly implied. I could say that. Let your delight be in the Lord. But... That's not what he's saying. His delight is. It's a matter of fact. He's not telling you what you need to do. He's not telling you what constitutes, or he's telling you what constitutes the blessed man. His delight is. He's not telling you what the keys to success are. He's telling you that the difference between a blessed man and a cursed man is a matter of what he is delighted by. It has absolutely nothing to do with how much you go to church or how much you read your Bibles. It's a question of what actually makes you happy. 
where your deep-seated joy actually is found. And if your delight, and only you know the answer to that question, you and the Lord know the answer. Your family may not even know the answer to that question. Perhaps only you know the answer to that question of whether your delight is actually found in His Word, is actually Him Himself. If your delight is not found in the instruction of the Lord, you should be very concerned for your soul. But there's another person that's hearing this sermon. You love the Lord. You love to study His Word. Perhaps not as much as you wish you loved it, but you love it. But you're, you're unsatisfied with your walk. And you still struggle with some of the, the same feelings and the same things that, you've been, that have been plaguing you for what feels like forever now. And at the end of the day, you wonder, have I really even grown at all? I want to encourage you in a, in a couple of ways. First of all, join the club. Every single one of us is in that position Every single one of us struggles in their walk. Every single one of us is unsatisfied in where we are in our, in our walk. But second, I want to encourage you this way. I've been a Christian for almost 30 years. Really, I don't remember not being a Christian, but I know I got baptized at, at eight, so I've almost been a Christian for 30 years. And I, I've always known God to play the long game. And, and what I mean by that is that Day to day, you normally don't notice much progress in your sanctification. There might be seasons, there might be a brief time period where there's just a revolutionary change in your perspective, your outlook, your worship of the Lord. But normally, day to day, you don't see much progress in your sanctification. Yet you keep showing up to his house of instruction, drinking as much or as little as you can from his word in any given day. And one day, you'll look back at 2020 you and you'll think, who's that guy? Who's that girl? I don't don't recognize that person. That person had absolutely no idea what affection for the Lord actually was. And now I I, I think I understand a little bit more about it. But I'll tell you who that person was. It was a person that didn't have much more than Jesus and a Bible. And they kept coming back to his word to know more. They kept availing themselves to the sermon at his church or her church. They kept repenting of sins that they were convicted by after the preaching of the word They kept listening to the various teachings available to them through their church. They kept investing in relationships that were fostered in the church that would encourage them in one way and correct them in another in their walk. That's who that person was. And like a tree planted near streams of water that yields fruit in its season, the Lord produced the fruit in that person's life the exact season he had determined. 
He only needed to be faithful. But let's consider the path of the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked, instead of being like, a, like the tree planted near streams of water, are like, tr- are like chaff, which is like fruitless hay that is just driven away by the wind. Now you notice the wicked, uh, that's a term, it's used four times in, in, this, in these brief, this brief little passage. And sinners, which is used twice in this brief passage, they were once, in verse 1, in the mocking position of the righteous and are now driven away by the wind. But this is really important to see. When are they driven away? In judgment. There's a basic assumption in the psalm that the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, are going to be here for a while. You might say they're going to grow up, the chaff is, alongside the wheat. And they're going to be sorted out in judgment. Implying that there's going to be plenty of supply. And many times, they're going to be richer than you. They're going to be more successful than you. They're going to be in higher positions of authority than you. And they're going to offer to teach you how you can be as successful as they are. At the beginning of the psalm, the scoffers, the sinners, and the wicked are presumably mocking the ways of the Lord. But by the end, they cannot stand in the judgment seat of God. The psalmist isn't telling you, hey, look, if you just, you just apply these principles and you'll be as successful as you want to be, but you'll do it God's way. You'll do it in ways that honor Him. People want to learn from you. Instead, he's telling you, learn from the Lord. Grow in your relationship with the Lord and persevere until judgment day. And then you will see the real value of the lifestyle of the sinner and the wicked and the scoffer. We actually get a picture of this in Revelation 6, 14 to 17. It says this, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There is the wicked fleeing from the wrath of God and asking, who can possibly stand in judgment? You read on in chapter 7 and you'll see, starting in verse 9 and following, the righteous are standing around the throne. Why is it that the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer won't stand in judgment? Why is it that, that 
The righteous are able to stand and the wicked are not able to stand in judgment. The psalmist actually tells us. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In other words, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's the reason they can stand in judgment. The image presented in this phrase is an intimate knowledge of the righteous. Picture the Lord watching over the righteous. He's wooing them. He's calling them. He's encouraging them. He's correcting them. He's growing them in righteousness. And the righteous man doesn't owe his perseverance ultimately to his own abilities and his own hard work, but to the Lord's knowledge of him. That the Lord was watching over him, protecting him, and persevering him. The Lord has persevered his way, but the wicked perish. The question that remains at the end of Psalm 1, which path are you on? Now, truth be told, we make a myriad, we make myriad of decisions in daily life. And each decision is taking into account its own path. But as we seek to evaluate the choices that we make on a daily basis, are our choices more consistent with the path of wickedness that leads us by the counsel of the wicked and the scoffers and the sinners? Or are the choices that we make more consistent with the man who is blessed because his delight is in the law of the Lord, in the instruction and teaching of the Lord? I want to ask just a couple of questions that will help us maybe evaluate the decisions that we make in that process. So I'm going to ask a broad umbrella question, and then I'm going to ask a few more that will help you get on train of thought of how I'm thinking. First main question is this. Do you take more counsel from the world or from Scripture? Do you take more counsel from the world or from Scripture? So as an example, can you quote more lines from movies than from Scripture? Now, when I'm writing these questions, I'm writing them to me so that they hurt me, okay? So I'm on the couch right now. I'm in the pew right now, always. But I'm, I'm, I'm on the couch, especially with these questions. Are you more well-versed in Sean Hannity and Ben Shapiro and Rachel Maddow than the Apostle Paul prophet Isaiah, and Jesus of Nazareth? Are you more familiar and well-versed in what political pundits say about the world today than you are about what Paul, Isaiah, Jesus say about the world today? Another question, out of the last 72 hours of life, how much of your time has been spent on social media and in front of some form of entertainment versus reading the Word of God. Do you cope with stress by griping, gossiping, venting, eating, drinking, perhaps any other, nor, uh, other unhealthy endeavors, or by reading, praying, singing, and meditating on God's Word? When times get tough, when you begin to panic and anxiety begins to build, in your heart, where do you go? What do you do? Is your counsel inventing to friends, venting on social media, 
Whatever that avenue looks like. Eating, drinking perhaps. Or is it taking counsel from the word? Reminding yourself of the gospel through song. Prayer, as Peter reminded us several weeks ago, casting our anxieties on him. That's the first question. Do you take more counsel from the world or from scripture? There may be 150,000 questions that you could ask underneath that to help you think through. Do I take more counsel from the world or from scripture? Second thing I want you to consider, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, all the characters in Pilgrim's Progress that are seeking to direct Christian. This might also, this big umbrella question might also help you understand what path you're on as you advise others. When you play the role of counselor, do you give secular or godly counsel? Are you the blessed man pointing other people toward blessedness, toward the, 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 the holy city? Or are you the scoffer, the sinner, and the wicked pointing people to unrighteousness? It's two questions that might help us think through this. Out of the last 50 conversations that you've had, which is a long way back, 50 conversations you've had, and I'm going to limit these conversations to no one within your own house. So I know during the time of social distancing, we don't see that many people, so you may have to go back for a long time to think about the last 50 conversations, could be on the phone, through text message, whatever, that you've had with people. I want you to consider those people that you've talked to. Out of the last 50 conversations that you've had, how many of them were centered around the Scriptures? Surely in those 50 conversations, you've had a number of conversations about who provides the best takeout, in which case Scripture is probably not going to come up. But then you've probably had some other conversations in those last 50 that would be someone bearing their soul to you, someone talking about deep, hurtful things, somebody talking about hard things in life, and you having to navigate through those waters. How many of those conversations are you directing them to the Word of God itself and giving them wise counsel from it? The second question in that, do your political opinions, the ones that you espouse, the ones that you post on Facebook, the ones that you repost on Facebook or wherever, the ones that you talk about with your friends on, on the phone or anything like that, how many of the political, uh, do the political opinions that you espouse so closely align with one party that it's impossible to see the difference between your version of Christianity and what that party believes? Because believe it or not, there are differences between Christianity and either Democrat or Republican. In other words, are you counseling people to be good Christians and to submit to the word of the Lord and follow him and be citizens of his kingdom? Or are you simply interested in making someone a good American? Where is your counsel? That'll tell you what your life actually looks like. Does it look more like the wicked? Or does it look more like the blessed? So, EBC, let's resolve a few things. Let's resolve. First and foremost, everyone listening, I don't care if you're a kid, I don't care if you're an adult, listen, eyes right here. Pray, ask God to increase your affection for him. Ask him to increase your affection for him. Get down on your knees as a family and pray. I don't care what 
point in your walk with the Lord you are. I don't care if you became a Christian yesterday or if you've been a Christian for 70 years. Pray that the Lord would increase your affection for him. Then go to his word. Read the Bible for yourself. If it's been a long time, if you're not super familiar, start with one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, maybe. Ask, what is this saying? What does it mean? How do we apply it? What is it why does this matter to me in my life? Third, take advantage of the biblical teaching that's offered in your church. We not only have Sunday morning worship services where there's teaching, we also have building blocks. Typically when we meet together at 9.30 that we, we go through every, we go through lots of things. Uh, 9.15 actually. We go through, it's been so long since we met together, I don't even remember the times anymore. But 9.15 we do building blocks where we teach in-depth things, kind of seminary light sort of things. We have Wednesday night, which we've still been doing through Zoom. Join those Zoom chats. We can talk about uh, all the deeper things of the Old Testament. We're going through it and understanding what's happening in the Old Testament. Avail yourself to those teachings, the biblical teaching that's offered at the church that you go to. Because those things are going to grow you and mature you in faith. These are ordinary means of grace that the Lord has given to us. The question is, is your delight in him? If so, then you'll seek these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. How true it is and how true it's always been. That you have never left yourself without witness here on the earth whether it was those that had seen you and dealt with you personally, like Moses, or the prophets, Abraham, or your word that was transcribed and written down for the generations to read and grow in righteousness, or Jesus coming in flesh, God in the flesh, coming to us, the greatest witness to you of all. So much that he could say, if we have seen him, we've seen the Father. And now we have your very words, inerrant and infallible, here in front of us. And we live in America where every single one of us that once one has a copy, maybe many, you have given us ample testimony of your goodness, of your grace, of your mercy, of truth. Only increase our desire to read it. Lord, increase our desire for you and reveal yourself to us through your word as we drink it in. In Jesus' name, amen.